Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Charlotte. For our guest today, please welcome Francisco Gonzalez Polido, FGP International Architect based in Chicago, where he leads FGP Italia. FGP leads a team that is currently focused on designing buildings across a range of scales and typologies that contribute to social and economic advancement through the alignment of design, science, and technology. FGP does so by drawing on nearly three decades of experiences spanning three periods of practice, leading his own studio in Mexico City, 1993 to 1998, and collaborating with Helmut Jan and becoming business partner and president of Jan, and now as a founder of FGP Italia. For more information, feel free to visit www.fgp-atelia.com. I-E-R.com. Again, that's www.fgp-a-t-e-l-i-e-r.com. Hello, Francisco. It's an honor and pleasure to have you on the Modern Architect Show today. Thank you, Tom, for having me here with you. It's Thank you. Great. We're really excited. As you say, before we warmed up, usually we go in the green room for about 10 or 20 minutes. We were there for like a half hour. It's so fun. I can't wait to get on share with our audience. Francisco, if you will... Can you share with us some early inspiration or as far back as you can recall, when you were inspired to be an architect or in the built environment, was there a galvanizing moment or were there moments if, if you're at liberty to share with us? You know? Yeah, there was. I think my father was actually always building something. And when I was a kid, uh, you know, I was growing up in the northern part of Mexico and he, uh, he had a large ranch and, you know, in, in places like this, you always need all kinds of things, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think that in a certain way sort of influenced my, my desire to build things. But I think the, the real moment is when I discover my passion for science and mathematics. Oh, yeah? Okay. And that, in, I think, in combination with art and somehow 
the practicality, right, of building something, somehow it came together kind of late in, in my life. It wasn't really in the early years. I would say that it was more when I was probably 16 or 17 when I realized that the combination of these things was interesting to me and architecture was really the place where they can come together, right? In, yeah. In, you know, in, in an integrated way. Yeah. yeah. So, so basically it sounds like even before you were a teenager... That you kind of, you, you knew that the, a, a world that you wanted to be in. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think I was very interested in science and technology. And I think my work in some way still reflects that sort of attitude, right? For me, the things that actually work are beautiful. And sometimes it doesn't happen the other way around, right? There's a lot of beautiful things that they don't really work. <laughs> and I don't have appreciation for that. You know? So I think in, in that sense... I always come from a kind of a scientific approach to the design um, object, right? And I think this is really what took me into the field. Yeah. yeah. Now, the scientific approach, I have a question that I've asked uh, before, then there's no right, obviously right or wrong answer to it, but discovery or creativity, which would you say that you practice more of, a discovery or creativity? Yeah, I think, you know, there's always this reflection about the muse, right? I mean, we're waiting for the muse to come and, and I really don't believe in this, you know. I think that okay. actually creativity is something that happens after you work really hard on something. You start pushing yourself, you know, through multiple iterations, right? Iterations of, of uh, what you're trying to do. And that practice, I think, gets you to the place where you really want to be. And that's the moment of discovery. So I think it's not one or the other. I think it's like... It's a path that at the end really ends in that moment where you find the solution that you've been looking for, right? Yeah. So, but I actually think that more importantly, I think that that discovery, it's, um, is this little, these little innovations that as they accumulate, then one day they really transform something fundamental. So in a certain way, you know, I think my work is very much out to, um, well, maybe it's not autobiographical, but it's 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 an accumulation, right, of little innovations, okay. and the next building is always influenced by the previous one in some way, even when typologically they're different, right? Because I believe that as creators, we're in the search of that next step, right? That that is is going to right, you know, bring the work into a different level, I guess. Yeah. Now that next step, are you almost always on? I mean, obviously we're here in our studio, but are you still thinking, you know, as you walk out, just when you go out into the world, do you thinking of applications to projects that you're working on or could work on? Is there ever an off button, I guess, for you? Yeah, I think the, the most interesting aspect of architecture right now, I think, is is the collaborative aspect of it. You know, when you think about the best buildings that I've done are really the buildings that I've done in collaboration with somebody else. and By and designer or? By design, okay. by design. You know, it's never, you know, and again, I think my work is pretty much defined by this kind of spirit of collaboration in which you start working with engineers from the beginning and together you're really forming this this kind of object, right? And so the engineer starts really thinking as, the, as an architect and the architect as an engineer. And I think this is where really wonderful things happen. So I think um, that multidisciplinary, which I think has become a, a much more common place right now in architecture than it used to be when I really started doing this, like 20 years ago. Uh, people were really 
really kind of in the beginning of that sort of exploration, right? Because in the past, the idea was the architect designs a problem and then is the problem of somebody else, right? So then <laughs> yeah. the engineers, they come and they fix it, right? Yeah. I really don't believe in this. I think okay. that, that really great architecture comes from this very synergetic, symbiotic approach, right? And, and I think it has become even more interesting these days because it's not only about collaborating with the usual trades like your mechanical engineers or structural engineers, facade engineers. Right now we're looking into psychologists, sociologists, you know, historians, fine arts people. Even, you know, I designed a bridge in China that I work with a composer, you know. A composer? A, a composer, yeah, because it was a two-kilometer bridge and I thought it's just too long, you know. There's yeah, got to be an, a, an experience to this. It just cannot be just a beautiful object. So then I decided, you know, I have a musician kind of background. So I decided that I wanted to create some kind of sound that would basically eclipse the sound of the cars that are really next to you. Are you kidding? And, no. oh and then, and then it becomes really a much more integrated experience, right? And you start thinking about other things, right? The city, the water, and the sound itself. And, and by the way, the sound was actually created by, by the vibration of the cars. I was basically taking the vibration of the cars on the bridge and then through the use of springs, you know, transmitting that vibration to ribs that were actually rattling. And because they had different lengths, they were rattling in different frequencies, you know, a, a percussive sound that was two kilometers long. Right? No way. So, so in a way, I guess what I'm saying is that right now we're collaborating with much more interesting fields than we used to, right? Okay. And the result is um, obviously... Like music. <laughs> like music, yeah. That's right. Yeah. How important to you is obviously yeah. the acoustics in a building or in a dwelling? It is very important. Okay. You know, I mean, from a very technical point of view, you know, when you design... A, right now I'm, I'm working on a nanotechnology lab in Monterey in Mexico and it's quite a sophisticated building actually I'm very proud of that because it's actually moving Mexico from the industry of manufacturing to the industry of knowledge it's uh, really going to be you know a, a landmark building for Latin America I have to say and for example there acoustics you know between the rooms are really important right I mean because of all these very sensitive sort of experiments that are taking place in different rooms and of course the building has to be compact so there's a lot of adjacencies at the same time, the client wanted to create an ecosystem, right? You know, a place where people from different places of the university, students, teachers, even, you know, industries that are working in the building where they can all, you know, come together and meet and trade, you know, knowledge. And so, yeah, acoustics is always important, you know, sometimes from a very technical point of view and sometimes maybe from a more metaphysical point of view, right? Like yeah. in the bridge where you want to create an experience that is really memorable. So. Yeah, that memorable experience. It sounds like you're you're designing and creating from the person outward. Is that correct or am I... A... I think it's always his way. Okay. Yeah. Or at least for me, you okay. know, at least for me. I think it's a very personal process, you know. Every time that I, I start working in a building, it's interesting because I... I don't start drawing right away. I really, uh, yeah. Oh. I tend to. I go to the movies. You know, I play my guitar. I, I play, <laughs> no, you know, I'll do all kinds of things because what I'm trying to do is really to think about the problem that I have to solve, right? Okay. And put all the parts together in my head. And once I have really a clear path of what I want to do, this is really when I sit and then 
I just go for hours and hours and hours to really sort of. I I, I still sketch by hand. I yeah, how com- is that? To I sketch use computers. By hand. Okay. Yeah, I still I use computers, but I was trained by hand, so I still do that. Really makes me really think about what I'm doing. Uh, with the computer, sometimes I'm translating too much, you know, the idea from my head into the, the interface. With my hand, there's no translation, you know, there's no delay. I go directly from what is in my head into what I really want to create. But what is really fascinating these days is that, you know, we live in, in a world of images, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we see so many things around us constantly. And some of these um, shapes are really quite complex, right? We're exposed to things that we were not exposed to any years ago or 30 years ago and what is fascinating is that some of these shapes can only really really be designed and built with computers right with the help of computers so it's a very hybrid process you know model making is very important part of the practice too i think this is still a way where we can feel the scale, you know, the texture of things to, because of course, all these things eventually are going to be touched by humans, right? And we got to make sure that they respond to them the way that we imagine. Yeah. How important to you is the tactile feel of as many elements as possible into the project? You know, it's interesting you ask this question because I remember I, I was actually in Spain in an exchange program years ago and I was taking a phenomenal class in um, theory of architecture and the professor was a doctor in theory and we would go around in Spain, I travel all over Spain every weekend and he would ask us to hug, to kiss all this architecture, you know, like all buildings. No way, really? really like, yeah, like literally hog this column, right? Let's kiss this, <laughs> you know, um, building and whatever and feel the temperature. And and I thought in the beginning that it was a little bit eccentric, but uh, it's amazing, you know, as years go by and I think of him, this is something that it really sort of stay with me and you know it felt such a yeah kind of an eccentric thing but it's so important right now as part of my process right i mean you gotta think that in the morning when you get up when you design a house for somebody what is the first thing that he's gonna touch you know with his feet what is the temperature, oh. right? What What is the temperature? What is the texture? What is What is the view? You know, so architecture really at the end is about creating experiences as we move along spaces that it's always, there's something else to see. There's always something else to feel. So texture is really super important. Yeah. In, so you're really feeling world. all the senses yeah. too. Not just the feel, but the, the taste, the temperature. Of course. The smell. Of course. Architecture is a multi-dimensional Not everyone thing. thinks this way, Francisco. Yeah, I don't think so. I, you know, I think probably this comes a lot from my background. You know, you got to think that I grew up in a place where it was all about the senses, right? In the ranch, uh, you know, there were no toy stores, right? And there, I mean, you had to go and find something to play with, right? Sticks to build something. And, and as you're out there, you're exposed to the scent of orange uh, trees and the color of avocados, right? And all these things I think in a way for me architecture is really about creating these emotions right that I think they come from childhood I'm I'm convinced right a lot of the things that I'm trying to do are things that I feel a strong bond and in general they are really things that I I grew up with yeah that's interesting you said bring up childhood there's no I haven't found any any studies that back this up but uh, uh, firmly believe that if you're doing what you kind of were uh, tickled or were mm. inspired by, 
in your youth, as an adult, you're much more likely to be fulfilled <laughs> and, and not dissatisfied with your life or the direction it's going. I, I don't know. I don't have any proof for that. But Yeah, it's interesting. You know, one day I, I met a person. I was always very impressed because she was always looking very energetic. And as years were going by, she was, in my perception, she was looking younger and younger, which was kind of wild. <laughs> the other right? way. And, and one day I asked her, I said, Katie, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm speaking a little bit with a Spanish accent. Katie, Perfect. right? Katie. I said, Katie, <laughs> so I, I need to learn your secret. What yeah. is this thing that you do that you look better <laughs> and better every year? And she said, you know what I do? I, there's seven exercises that, are, that I practice that are moves that all kids do. And we stop doing them when we grow older. And I have a routine and then she gave me this phenomenal book with these exercises. And as I was, you know, looking at them, it was so awkward that I was trying to practice something that when <laughs> I was a kid, it was so natural in me. And we, you know, I have a theory. I think somehow some schools are great, but some schools are actually terrible. You know, they, you, <laughs> un, you go there to unlearn. Not oh, to learn, right? Yeah. To unlearn things that are actually essential. And we lose these things. And, and so it was amazing that I was actually trying to practice these things. And when you watch movies of kids, this is all they do, right? <laughs> they spin in their axes, right? I mean, this is actually, <laughs> yeah. she was saying that this is actually the most important thing, you know, spinning in your axes, you know, like crazy and rotating like this. Yeah, you know, kids uh, love to do it. You see them do that anywhere. That's exactly right. And yeah. we stopped doing this. And she said, this is eternal youth. And I don't know if it's true, but to me, she was really an example of that. So I, I got to believe it somehow. Yes. And the science, <laughs> the scientific part of you is looking at there is a way, a method, a system, a process to achieve the sense of usefulness that she achieves year after year. I so guess. there is a formula, a I, process. I, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> well, also, speaking of the process, let's go, we're getting excited here. We're missing our, our break. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Arts Earth is a nonprofit media organization headquartered in the San Francisco Bay Area that promotes the arts worldwide by providing complete event promotion for artists, organizations, promoters, and venues. Arts Earth covers dance, film, literature, music, theater, visual arts, and multimedia, featuring original reviews of performances, exhibits, and showings fundraisers and live engagements worldwide by the arts earth staff for more information please visit artsearth.org we're talking today with francisco gonzalez pulido principal of fgp italia international architect based in chicago where he leads fgp italia for more information feel free to visit www.fgp-atelier.com. Again, that's www.fgp-atelier.com. Francisco, before we uh, we went into our break and talking about the process, do you have a process kind of that you go through mentally or emotionally every time you are about to embark on a project? Yeah, I think it's important always to to talk to your client. Uh, I think um, it's amazing because I think that we live in a world we we stopped 
listen to listen to people right and and i think this is such an essential part of my process i i like to listen to my clients and not exactly as an interview where you really talk about tell me your program right how many square meters of this and that this is irrelevant right these are facts that you're gonna get you know it's really listening about his experiences, his expectation, right? His dreams, his ambition, what is what they're trying to do? So I think the first part of the process is always that sort of interview where it can get really personal, right? Sure. Because it, it's gotta be personal, yeah. right? A building is a personal thing, right? This is the first thing. The second thing is I told you, I, I like to, to go and think about it. And my method is I like motorcycles. So I take motorcycle rides. I play music so I go to my studio and I reflect on things I love film so I watch films and and then I start forming sort of this idea I start connecting you know what the, the conversation and and sort of translating that into an experience right there's always a sequence you know I like to think in terms of sequences and it's always important when you're talking to to someone when the conversation is actually good you know when he's really engaged you discover that you know what are the priorities you know where where how is he thinking about space but obviously he's not talking about space sure. right he's talking to me about his his dreams he what he wants to do i'm translating that into space and it's interesting when you go back to those conversations you discover that people in general you know they know more than they think about the space that they expect. They just don't know how to really realize it. That's why they need an architect to do that for them. That's very unique because I've not heard that a lot, especially from architects where they actually feel like the client actually does know what they're looking for. I, I disagree. I think oh, okay, we'll, we'll very, there's a, what I call sort of a universal intuition, right? And uh, we all experience space. We're so close to it, right? It's, it's something that, you know, we're always somewhere, right? Sure. We're not in a void. We're yeah. always <laughs> experiencing space. In, and so I think the, the process is not very linear, but I would say this is how I begin. And then, of course, you start drawing, you know, there's many ways to start exploring an idea you know sometimes it's a sketch sometimes really is building a quick model either with clay i use legos do you really with you? i do yeah oh that's awesome. because very yeah. quickly you know i can you get a feel legos. a feel of the massing and then we kind of move quickly into the use of pretty advanced you know digital tools i mean these days the offer is incredible you know to give you examples we can simulate i'm actually designing a roof just to give you a concrete example, I'm designing a roof for a university. It's a, a library. The design was by Sasaki, these architects in Boston, and I'm doing the roof to cover the courtyard. And when they commissioned that to me, I wanted to create something that was almost invisible. You know, there's this thing that I always say that I like things to be light. You know, I, I'm a big fan of lightness, you know, in general, things that they don't carry any weight. They're as transparent as they can be. I am obsessed with the weight of buildings in general, you know, and, and, and using less of everything. I think this is so important. So when I was thinking about this roof, I thought I want this thing to be so thin, you know, a membrane that is a high performance membrane, but is almost invisible, right? 
And then I decided to apply this pattern that were all these leaves of this tree that is almost extinct in that area. So I wanted people to remember that this tree used to be there by applying this pattern into this roof. And when I was really drawing the pattern, I mean, this roof is pretty big. I couldn't draw millions of leaves, right? It's impossible. So you have to use computers. And then we discover a program. It was phenomenal that was actually simulating the effect of of wind on particles that are actually sitting on a surface, right? So we were able to, with computers, to simulate, you know, different scenarios. These particles basically were turning these particles into leaves eventually, right? But when we were actually exploring with the program, there were just these little dots. And then with this interface, we were creating all these different patterns. And then we got so specific, you know, this is kind of the scientific part of yes. my work that I love, that we were thinking, okay, so the winds in that part of the world are coming really from the southeast, the predominant wind. So let's just really simulate the wind coming at a certain speed, at a certain height from that orientation. Let's put all these particles, you know, we basically dispersed two million particles in the surface, and then we pushed them with the wind, and then there was a pattern that was creating in the first 30 seconds, you know, and we loved it. <laughs> and it was, I was, it was not even me, you know, it was a we were manipulating a computer that was creating this beautiful thing. And when I saw it, I thought, you know, I cannot even do better than this. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. it's like nature really in power, right? Yeah. So we loved it. And then, you know, we, that, that became the design. So amazing. So this, was, this was actually, yeah. One of those stories that, that, what, yeah, that has actually influenced a lot of the work that we're doing right now, you know? Yeah. That I build lighter. That's a quote. Uh, that was one of the, um, reasons we talked about uh, why I sought you out to be on, on the show is I'd not heard that. I want to build lighter. Can you share with uh, our audience what that means to you? You know, I think lightness is something that is both physical and metaphysical, right? I mean, to me, I am obsessed with the idea of a building that is light because that means that we're going to use less of everything, right? It's less effort to build something that is light, right? It's less effort to uh, provide energy for that. It's less effort to carry those materials to the construction site, to erect it. You know, I have this obsession of uh, sort of, I know there's been a lot of discussion through the years about, you know, industrializing architecture and it's so difficult. You know, I think architecture is still fairly archaic in the way we build things. We're using great tools we think in different probably in more more sophisticated ways because of the world that is around us technologies influencing every aspect of our lives deeply but the truth is that when it comes to build something we go back to 100 years ago mm-hmm. and i just simply hate that you know i think this is just wrong you know the industry hasn't really evolved as other industries when you think of the aerospace industry or the car industry right i mean this these guys they can build incredibly sophisticated pieces, you know, with precision, with tons of innovation in short periods of time, and they can control the cost, right? In architecture, every project is a problem. You know, the cost is a problem. The the schedule is a problem. You're always, because you're always kind of inventing something, right? And I think, you know, when I think going back to the point of, I want to build lighter, I think it's in a certain way is my... I I see my mission, you know, that lightness is connected not only with this physical aspect of things or or what it makes you feel with the metaphysical aspect 
but it's also connected with the idea of revolutionizing an industry that is definitely archaic and is not really providing, you know, it, it, it it drives me crazy to see what young people have to pay for space these days, you know, okay. it's wrong. This is simply wrong. Yeah. Everyone should have the right to have uh, dignity in their space, right? E everyone should have the right to have sufficient space to be creative, to cook, to sleep, right? And not to pay massive amounts of money for this. I think this is something that we have to change. And I think, you know, the, we're actually cornered right now in a, in a position where I think only through technology we're going to be able to break free again right? The industry is controlling us too much. We're too dependent on the forces that are controlling us right now. And that's why we're stuck in that moment. I believe that technology is going to help us to break free again and hopefully to build lighter. Yeah. To, I love that. It's definitely a thought provoking and a breakthrough in thinking. Going back to the people deserve space or deserve a space to live in. What factors or what, say, one or two things that are influencing that need to change or need to adjust so that that can be a reality in your experience? I think, I think governments have a lot of responsibility there. In my opinion, I'm getting a little bit more serious because I think it's an important topic. You know, I think governments are not regulating things, you know, in a way that they're creating equality. And I think this is a real problem. Architects also are too focused in building names for themselves and becoming famous. And there's all this star architect thing that, that I think is, is just getting to a place that makes no sense anymore. I think as architects, we have a social responsibility that, that we're really not fulfilling, right? So I think it's a combination of things. And of course, I think developers, there's great developers out there. I'm not saying that everybody is that way. There's great developers out there. But there's also a bunch that uh, their main, and I understand profit is important, right? But I think profit with content would be amazing. And not just, uh, you know, when I look at what's going on in Chicago right now, it makes me sad to, to see a city that used to be such a cutting edge architecture, you know, place for architecture. And right now it's just a field of buildings that are faceless and that are really not improving in any way the urban condition or the life of young people who move there, you know, to pursue a career. It's, I think this is just wrong. Uh, I, no, carry on. This is terrific. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I, I was going to say that I was actually uh, reading recently something about um, a guy in Germany who has set up um, an organization that is providing funding for people. You know, the, his theory is that everyone should get a certain amount of money a month so they can have a basic living, so they can create. And I think this is something so wonderful, right? I mean, when you have your base cover, then you start really moving away from those concerns, right? When you have a, a great place to live. And when I say great is dignifying, right? When you have what you need, right? So you can be creative. And when you have that base cover, then we start moving into the pushing our intellect to create. And I think that this is 
the, the reason why some of these big cities, you know, their social problems are so big as well, because people are concerned with fundamental things, right? To feed themselves, to feed their kids, because they don't have that basic uh, sort of package cover, sure. right, in life. And, and I think architecture should provide for this. And cities should be responsible in supporting that um, infrastructure, right? I mean, I don't see enough of cities promoting, you know, competitions for young architects to create dignifying space that could be affordable, right? It's always, okay, developer, you're going to do this building and then you're going to put 20% of low-income affordable housing in your building. And of course, what do they do? Nothing good because they don't care, right? There's no creativity. They put them in the lower portion of the building, in the places where there's the worst view or whatever because what they want is to make money. This is not the way to build a great city. Yeah. What's your opinion if every city let's say the mayor or, or, or even a state had it as their right hand person, an architect or architect thinking that they made their decisions or they, before they made the decisions concerning the city and the entire city grid, they actually consulted with and through their architect as their right or left hand person. What do you feel? How do you think? That what you're saying is absolutely essential. You know, I was actually in a panel discussion recently and we were actually talking, I was in Prague and we were talking about that subject. And what I said is, you know, architecture schools, they're too focused right now. Some of them, I'm not saying all of them, but, but you know, there's this idea of creating architects in a very traditional way. You know, you're going to be a designer, right? You're going to be a designer. And to be frank with you, no, we need to be in politics, right? Um, why so important? Because ignorance, right, is part of the reason why the cities look the way they look. Because the guys who are there making those decisions, they don't really understand. They're not really trained to understand the consequences of building the things that they're approving. So I actually think that what you said, Tom, is absolutely essential. Architects should be part of that discussion, should be empowered to support cities to make those decisions in a way that is responsible for the future of, of the cities and, and, the, and the communities where these buildings are actually getting built. Yeah. yeah. So uh, in essence, it's mandate. It should be. Maybe that's extreme, but I say no. It should no, be. Mandate. It should be. It should be a mandate. Absolutely. In every city. Absolutely. And, and, and yeah. Imagine every city has this scenario. I believe Los Angeles may be one of the first or one of the few that have an actual, um, what they call, what's it? chief design officer, CDO. Mm -hmm. And uh, other cities, uh, either they're, they're not moving on it or they're taking a look at how it all goes. So if you have that in each city, then it would just be a matter of how good is the architect who oversees that city. Then you, if you have it, it's mandatory. And, and I think you always need a board, right? I think boards are actually okay. important. You know, I'm actually in, in the board of, of one of the schools of architecture in Mexico. And it's kind of remarkable. You know, it's a really global board. When you have those conversations and people bring the experiences from all the places they come from, you really, it's not only about the responsibility, but it's also about being visionary, right? Because there's always this aspect of, okay, I'm confronted with this problem. Should I approve it or not? But there's always this position. An architect in that position would be able to say, you know what, this is not good enough for the city. We have oh. to remain visionary. We have to beat this again. 
we're not going to allow this to happen. You know what happens is you get a product and it's almost like you're stuck with it. And then you want to work around, you know, the problems to make it a little better. I think this is just the wrong way to build something, right? If it's not good enough, you have to do this again. Let's open this to a broader spectrum, right? That let's make it really truly a competition, right? For this phenomenal site and have a board review these things. This is really not happening. And that's why you have Chicago looking that way. Wow. Which is my city and I love, but it's... uh, Do you see it improving in the next four or five years? To be honest with you, there's something really interesting happening in Chicago and it's on the West west side. I think the loop is kind of stuck, you know, uh, but the West side and what happened there is that a lot of these companies like Google and McDonald's and they're going back to the city, but in a different format. Hmm. And I think this is helping a lot these communities. They're not going to very tall buildings. They're going to buildings that are more uh, sort of horizontal in nature and more multi-dimensional, right? Where amenities are as important as office space. I know there's a lot of, you know, discussion, especially in California, right? About the nature, the future of the office building, right? right? They're more organic, they're more open, they're more connected. This is actually happening on the west side of Chicago. And what I find remarkable is that there's a lot of buildings that were... In industrial buildings. It's an industrial area. That's where my office is. I always okay. wanted to go there, actually, really? because um, th- most of the buildings are from the, you know, 1900s, 1920s, 1930s, 30s, and they're tough buildings. I love the buildings, you know, and, and but some of these companies, they're going back there and they're actually respecting the history of the place and trying to adapt their practice to this. And what is interesting is that what they're looking for is a lot of open space, you know, because organizations right now are very organic. Mm-hmm. So I think that is an interesting phenomenon that is happening in Chicago that I think is going to bring um, a very positive urban outcome in five to 10 years. There's another project that is called Lincoln Yards that is done by Sterling Bay in Chicago that it's a huge piece of land that is along the river. That what I see positive about this is that it's pushing the city to be much more pedestrian and is really connecting neighborhoods that have been really forgotten and bringing those, you know, those narratives really to the narrative of the city again. You know, there's a point that I think Cairo was too fragmented. And through this project, I think there's going to be a phenomenal linkage. You know, again, it's probably a 10 year process of all these neighborhoods and their infrastructural components. Because, you know, when you think that these neighborhoods have their little parks, you know, and they have their little, you know, amenity spaces, you know, mm-hmm. all these is going to become one network. That is kind of my vision for the great city, by the way. I think the the great city is a city where the car is going to be gone. Really? No car? I think so. I think so. I think this has been one of the, you know, I had this, I always, I kind of grew up with this notion that, you know, we had so many options as humans to build this planet and we made some really bad choices, you know, (laughs) and one was the car. I love cars. (laughs) They're phenomenal things but not in the city, you know. And when you think, you know, how much cars have disconnected us and how much space they use, and 
and how much infrastructure is required, right? If you would think that that space would be used for parks and for open space, you know, for people to really connect and engage, it's a tremendous amount of real estate. Just, just oh, think yeah. of, of Chicago Loop. If you would reclaim those streets <laughs> and would make them part of the urban sort of, you know, yeah, the urban realm, mm-hmm. right? The city would be completely different. I think this is this is something that, and, and I see there's some ex- experiments, you know, I was actually working on a master plan in Kuala Lumpur and they they really wanted to do something visionary. And I told them, guys, I would propose that we really push for public transportation. And if you want cars to be here, I want them to go underground. So nothing on the ground. You know, the ground is really for pedestrians. We're going to keep, and it was really a huge project. You know, there were tons of buildings. It was kind of a remote, a satellite city. It was a little bit of an experiment, but they were really, they remained visionary through the process of design. And we realized that it was expensive. Sure, it is expensive to build basements for cars because we're building basically all these roads underground, right? Roads, parking, you know, loading dogs, because we still need these things, unfortunately. But the idea was, let's raise the level of the city so we can have really a plateau where it's all pedestrian and parks and infrastructure. And what was interesting about this is I was collaborating. I invited a bunch of friends to work with me on this project, is that the moment that we had that real estate available, we were thinking completely different about the ground floor of the city, which, you know, right now, the ground floor tends to really be, you know, is my lobby. You know, we're very, sure. you know, it's my lobby. Territory. It's my lobby. Don't get in here. You know, and there's security. <laughs> the moment that this layer went underground, we were thinking of the lobby in a completely different way. And we started thinking, do we really need these boundaries? Do we really need all this glass in the ground floor? You know, especially in climates like this, right? Maybe in Chicago, you eventually need something sure. because the weather is harsh. But... You know, I think it's it's interesting when you when you start really shifting the model of the city, you know, just by removing the car. I mean, wonderful things are going to happen. Yeah, there's a city in Spain, I believe, that they that is right. I don't recall the name of the city, but that the, is right. The effects are unbelievably positive. That is right. That it, is right. It was crime filled, crime infested. There was no shops, merchants were closing their doors. They cut out all the cars, I think all of them. And uh, revitalize the city. So that's an example. So it sounds like you've heard of that as well. I heard yeah. of that. It's actually recent. There was something on, on the web, right, about it. And uh, I did some research and I found out that the area that they restricted for car access was very limited. Okay. It wasn't as broad as, you know, the article kind of implied. But it was almost like, you know, let's test what happens, you know, when you do something like this. And I think it's really, I think, an opportunity to, I, mean, I wouldn't say an opportunity. I think it's a model that, you know, a city like New York, can you imagine New York without cars? I no. mean, it would be an unbelievable place, <laughs> right? So I think this is, it's not so difficult to replicate. I guess this is what I was going to say, right? What's, mean, the, what's the fear in at least attempting that in a U.S. city, in your experience or opinion? What would be the fear of going that, even if it is a limited space? You know, I think humans are very, it's interesting because we love to talk about change. But I think it's amazing, you know, when you ask a person to, hey, get rid of your washing machine and get a new one. Oh, no, you know, I love my washing machine. <laughs> I'm so used to it. It's a yeah. wonderful thing, you know. And it's like, wait a second, there's this thing that does all these things and, and it's better. But it's amazing that we want change, 
but we actually resist change more than we actually are aware. Yeah. And, yeah. and when you think on the macro scale, on the scale of a city, you know, obviously change, it's a, it's a big thing, right? You know, I always think in terms of gasoline, you know, I really never understood why the electric car didn't really took off earlier. Yeah, it uh, actually was the first vehicle invented, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And, but there was this industry already in place that was, it was so strong and powerful that they would not let that flourish. <laughs> so I think in a way, I think cities operate a little bit like this, you know, they, they're relying on their own infrastructure. They, they move very slow. It's, it's hard to change things like that. And I don't believe that this is something that is going to happen that soon. But I think this is something that as architects, you know, I always say that when you design a good building, that building, once you put it in the place where it's going to be, is going to have a great effect on the community. And I think this is sort of the initiative that we need as well from the, from the cities, right? I think they need to be a little bolder in terms of pushing for this, you know, these initiatives of change, maybe in a micro scale. But I think once you start seeing the positive effects of this, it's, you know, it's a trickle effect, right? That's how it's called in English, yeah. right? a trickle effect. <laughs> that, that, that in a way, I, I see that in buildings, you know, sometimes clients question my decisions and they said, why are you doing? this in the ground floor. This is not what we do here. I said, well, because if you're, if you push for this, you're going to provoke things around you, you know, and positive things in your environment that are going to start really having a, an impactful transformation of, of the urban condition. I always remember, you know, there was this story, and this is a little bit of a commercial for another architect, but it made an impression on me. When Frank Gehry did that building in, in Bilbao, in Spain, oh, yeah. there was this story that I think someone was actually walking around Bilbao and he went to a butcher's shop. And the way this butcher had the meat sort of displayed was really crazy. It was almost like the Gary building, right? <laughs> and and I always found that remarkable because, because it, in a certain way, that's the, the profound influence of architecture, right? It, it goes to places that you cannot imagine when you make, you know, some bold decisions. Yeah. Wow. And so your inspiration and your direction can come from something completely outside of the realm of your training at all sometimes yeah sometimes speaking of that sometimes you've got a number of great projects around the world what if if you're at liberty to share with us what are some of the most recent projects you yeah, don't have to, to name names if it's confidential but yeah to hear well some. right now I'm, I'm finishing a baseball stadium in mexico okay. it's going to be the largest baseball stadium in the country uh, it's in mexico city uh, the team is diablos rojos which translates as the red devils the owner is probably the most important philanthropist in the country don alfredo harp elu He's been a remarkable client. It's going to be 20,000 seats. And in a certain way, I didn't want to design a container when I work on that project, which is kind of the typologically sort of the face of the stadium, right? It's always like this big, massive urban object in the city. I wanted to design something that was very porous, very transparent, very connected, very unusual for a stadium. Yes. Awesome. My thinking is that, you know, in baseball, you spend five hours in the game. You need to be connected with something else, right? And so then my the idea was to really create all these spaces that obviously they support the main purpose of the building, but they're equally important. And what is interesting is that, you know, right now we stop calling the building a stadium. We're calling it more, more and more a park. 
because we okay. we see that the those decisions that we took are really reflected in the spaces that we created in a way that the scale is much greater than the scale of architecture. It's really the scale of the city. You know, the building is really part of the city in so many ways. So that's one of the projects. The other one is the nanotechnology building, which is, is very sophisticated building. It's, it's a very interesting typology. I think it's a building that almost calling it a building is insane. It's really an ecosystem, right? It's a building where a lot of things actually are happening simultaneously. We expect people from very different fields to be in that building and to really start creating this place of exchange, right? Where sophisticated exchange, I mean, right? Because they, basically you have scientists, you have corporations, you have researchers, you have students in one place, and then you have the general public, which I think this was one of the greatest initiatives of the university that said, this is not going to be a building only for the scientists. We want people to come here and be able to really be part of this community as well. So I'm actually working on a 320 meter tall tower. It's around 1200 feet tall tower in, in China. This is for a media company. It was a competition. For me, it was a great project because you can imagine I founded the studio a year and a half ago and, uh, and then they invited me to compete again this big giants of architecture and we came in first place wow it was really a phenomenal thing for the studio to be so young and and working on such a an important project um china is a place that has a certain ambition but also it's an it's a challenging place because of the technological limitations so it's been a fascinating experience i just finished uh, the regional office of land rover in shanghai and i'm working on a culinary institute in puebla in mexico for probably the most prestigious culinary school in the country and again i'm i'm going tomorrow to la to visit this salon for yeah. uh, my dear friend ted gibson that is uh, is getting built in california and it's going to be the first smart salon in the world so i it's, it's really there's a lot of um, interesting projects of so very different scales as you can sure. see because the salon yeah. is like the smallest project that i've ever done and then at the same time i'm actually working on an airport right now this is a, a project i can talk about sure. where it is but it's it's a big project i have a you know I'm, i really have a, a lot of experience in airport design which is a very particular typology and i love because it's very scientific i like it so. and the analogy i can see why at least from my perspective is i want to build lighter can you see the correlations of why an airport would be something that you specialize in uh, yeah of course <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you're listening to the modern architect kzsu stanford 90.1 fm Everyone deserves equal access to housing, discrimination in housing based on your race, national origin, disability, age, marital status, sexual orientation, or because you have children is illegal. To report housing discrimination, call ECHO Housing, as E-C-H-O Housing. Fair Housing counselors will inform you of your rights and help you take action. ECHO Housing has offices throughout the East Bay and in Palo Alto. To get help or donate, call 1-855-ASK-ECHO, toll-free. That's A-S-K-E-C-H-O, toll-free. We're talking today with Francisco Gonzalez Polido of FGP International Architecture, based in Chicago, where he leads FGP Italia. For more information, you can visit www.fgp-italia. 
A-T-E-L-I-E-R. Again, that's www.fgp-a-t-e-l-i-e-r.com. Francisco, going back to that, you like exchange, but a sophisticated exchange. Share with us what it means to you. You know, I'm going to share a project. I think the best way to explain this is uh, I designed a project that was for Architectural Biennial for Chicago. I was invited to participate uh, in the first Architectural Biennial, and um, I was thinking what to do. And I was obsessed with this idea of knowledge exchange. And so I designed this building that was... It had a 234 units, let's call them containers, you know, so our listeners can imagine what I mean, sure. you know, 234 units that they were actually stacked up on a 13 story building. And as I was designing this thing, my rules were the containers are going to be all of them the same size. It's going to be a square, a perfect square, the site. And I'm going to use only 50% of the area on each level to build. So there was a 50% built and 50% open space on every level. So as we were stacking these containers, right, we were using, it was a very beautiful exercise. I, I'm a big fan of surrealism. So I was actually using... Salvador Dali's paranoid critical method, you know, <laughs> which was really by intuition, you know, without really a plan. I didn't want, we planned the unit, but then the way we were stacking them, it was like, let's do it as fast as we can so we don't have time to think about it. And so suddenly this very organic shape emerged, right? And the idea of the building was, I wanted to design a building that had no currency, and it was about exchanging what you know. And the idea, you know, really came after, you know, I'm very restless. I sleep very little, you know, five hours <laughs> is enough for me. So, you know, during lunchtime, I go crazy because I eat in 15 minutes, you know, and then what do you do with the rest of your time? Then you go back to work. So I was thinking it would be great that I can use my other 45 minutes and do and learn something. So this building, this building is that you can actually take those 45 minutes, go schedule with an app on your phone. We were actually working on that. You know, we developed the whole thing, you know, of course the building is not built. Everything was like a case study. So we develop an app because the building is almost a maze. It's a labyrinth, right? Because the way it is constructed, you really need an app to navigate the building. It's, it's really, it's complex. You just don't get to room 205 so easily, right? You need an application. <laughs> so then the idea is that through this app, you basically look for a menu of classes that are, you know, given by people around the world. Is Each one of these containers is a virtual classroom, essentially. So you go there for 45 minutes to learn something, right? And the way you pay is that you are obligated to give a class. So every time you teach something, you get 15 points and then you use these 15 points to go and learn something, right? So you, you pay one point and then you learn how to do a mozzarella salad, right? Because there's an <laughs> Italian guy, you know, sitting in Sicily, right? Somewhere there, right? Uh, teaching you how to do a mozzarella. Or there's a guy teaching you how to play uh, drums, right? And so you use the units that you earn by teaching and this is how you pay. So, and the building has no, no water, 
There has no water, no furniture. You know, I design the containers of the floor. It's comfortable. It's like really cozy. So you come with your sandwich, your own water. That's the rule of the building. You have to bring your own food and your own water because there's no water on the building. There's only restrooms in the ground floor. And then you sit there and then through a screen, you communicate with someone somewhere in the world and then you learn something. So I call it the knowledge trading center. And that's what I presented on the biennial. So, so I'm really, you know, I think, well, knowledge is our only way to progress, right? I mean, this is the only way that we're going to advance as a society. And it makes me sad that, you know, when you look at the reality of some of our museums, you know, you know, they don't get all the traffic, but I think also has to do with the way we're exchanging knowledge, right? It's a passive. Museums, in a certain way, is kind of a passive interaction, right? This building was more a, of course, it was a very active interaction, right? Because you're basically looking, you know, interacting with a human being as well that is communicating what he he does the best and, and there's an exchange. There's a true exchange. So, yeah, this is how far I took my passion for uh, knowledge exchange. <laughs> <laughs> no, how about yeah. what, what's your feeling on uh, how important curiosity is? Extremely important, right? I have a five-year-old son. His oh, name is Fabrizio, oh. and you know, there's always the cliche that kids teach us a lot of things, but it's true. And I think it's because they're incredibly curious about everything. And I think it's kind of sad going back to what I was saying before. You know, that we start spinning on our axis. I think we're, we we also stop asking ourselves constantly the most naive questions. And I think this is so essential, you know, as to really question, you know, what is what we do and how can we do that better? Or, you know, being different just for the sake of being different doesn't interest me, you know. I think being different for the sake of progress interests me, you know. And I think difference doesn't come just as a posture, right? It really comes as a as a necessity, right, for evolution. And I think just that uh, curiosity, you know, questioning all these things constantly, I think this is essential for... Yeah, that essential. So it sounds yeah. like, in, in essence, it sounds like you're... You're still a bit of a five-year-old yourself. Yeah, yeah. I like to think that way, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know yeah. you're sophisticated and you have training. Tops. And Tops fly, right? Tops. <laughs> I've been stopped. Oh, so the projects that you have now, they're, they're worldwide, obviously. They are, yeah. Um, more so in the U.S. base or not necessarily? In the U.S. right now, we, we have some prospects. We're not actually actively working on anything yet. There's very interesting prospects. The majority of the work right now is in Asia and in Latin America. Okay. Yeah. And that was, was that by design or no? They reached out to you? And no, no. It just happened to be that way. You know, I think architecture has become such a global field that uh, I travel a lot and I travel for many reasons. You know, I, I, there's years that I, because of my experience in airports, for example, uh, I, I lecture a lot about airport design. So I travel for that. But I spend a lot of time actually prospecting in different parts of the world because obviously I go to places that actually interest me. You know, in architecture these days, you cannot be waiting for the phone to ring. It's not going to happen. No, true. There's a lot of competition and, and there's great architects everywhere. You have to actually create your own opportunities. And in order to do that, you have to go out. Uh, it's like I go hunting. I go hunting for 
opportunities. And sometimes it's really, it's, it's a matter like, you know, in Chicago, there's this really important corridor, you know, the Kinsey Corridor, that is a, it's a phenomenal piece of infrastructure and nobody's doing anything about it. So I'm actually right now working with my team to develop a proposal for this. For myself, just because just, just because we're interested yeah. in, uh, you know, rehabilitating a part of infrastructure that is it was so important for the life of the city and is kind of forgotten. Yeah, Francisco, it's been an absolute honor and treasure <laughs> pleasure having you on. Thank, Thank you, you so much. It's so great. To I hope you. you consider coming on soon. Thank I really do. Absolutely. Think, yeah, Absolutely. love to have Thank you, you again. Tom. Thank, Thank you, guys. You. This has been great. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank You've you. You've been listening to the Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Francisco Gonzalez Pulido, international architect based in Chicago, where he leads FGP Italia. FGP leads a team that is currently focused across a range of scales and typologies that contribute to social and economic advancement through the alignment of design, science, and technology. They've drawn on nearly three decades of experiencing, spanning three periods of practice, leading to uh, his own studio in Mexico City, Chicago, collaborating with uh, Helmut Jean and becoming business partners, and now as founder of FGP. For more information, feel free to visit www.fgp-atelier.com. That's fgp-atelier.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studio in Palo Alto, California, and on location in California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, chief engineer Mark Lawrence, and assisted by Ash K. Chagi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect.